Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Here are the highlights coming up this week on Bald Move. Our coverage of Hot D, Fire and Blood, and the 1980s Shogun miniseries continues. But then on Tuesday, for the first time in 35 years, we asked the question, who framed Roger Rabbit? Hop aboard the train to Toontown as we revisit this incredible blending of live action and animation to see if it still holds up all this time later. Then on Wednesday, we get our first look at Blake Crouch's mind-bending sci-fi series, Dark Matter. The first two episodes drop simultaneously on Apple TV+, and we'll have a pair of podcasts, quantumly linked, ready for you to observe. You can find these and many other great podcasts by searching for Bald Move Pulp or Bald Move Prestige in your favorite podcast app. Game of Thrones 2, Electric Bukaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. This week is a first for Electric Bukaloo. My guest, M.L. Kavanaugh, is an honest-to-goodness military strategist. Matt is a retired U.S. Army lieutenant colonel. He's also got a Ph.D. in political science. He was a fellow at the Modern War Institute at West Point, and now he is professor of practice at Arizona State University. His book is Winning Westeros, How Game of Thrones Explains Modern Military Conflict. Of course, you can pick up this book on Amazon, or you can search for Winning Westeros Potomac Books. Without further ado, here is Lieutenant Colonel M.L. Kavanaugh. Matt, I'm just curious to know your overall relationship with this particular book yeah um unfortunately we have to the road the road begins a little bit further back um you know i uh taught for several years at west point and you know when you're in a classroom and standing up in front of a group of college students or cadets uh, mm-hmm. you know, there's an age gap. There's, there's a time difference where some of your jokes don't land. They're not as funny as you thought. Yeah. Um, but, but also like you're trying to relate this material to a group of younger people and you, you don't necessarily have common ground on which to hold the conversation. And sorry to interrupt, but yeah. what are you teaching? What subjects? So it was a military strategy course. Uh, this, you know, this was 
geez, it was uh, 2012 to 2015. And then um, I also teach uh, course occasionally at Arizona with Arizona State University on the same subject. And, you know, when you're trying to relate uh, these sorts of subjects to younger people, what you realize is that you lack a common frame of reference. Yeah. And, um, you, you know, we found uh, that Star Wars was an incredibly powerful way of connecting with younger people, but not just that. Right after leaving teaching at West Point, um, I had an assignment where I was working in uh, Korea with Korean military officers, and it was the same sort of thing hmm. um, that that could cross not just age gaps, but cultural gaps. And um, so uh, I pulled together a book project that we later titled Strategy Strikes Back, and where we we wrangled together a couple of dozen um, writers from all across uh, the spectrum when it comes to modern conflict. Um, uh, and, you know, our, our forward was written by General Stan McChrystal, for example, who commanded all forces in Afghanistan. And what was, what was really striking to me about that was um, General McChrystal is, you know, 30 some years older than I am. Um, and when we first talked about his participation in the project, hmm. he said, you know, I'm not like a huge Star Wars fan, you know, um, but uh, the very first movie he went to after he uh, finished uh, Ranger School, which is kind of it's a military school that um, you often do when you're a second lieutenant or before right. you're about to lead a number of troops. So he's 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 walked out of this really tough mi uh, military school and he walked into a movie theater to take his mind off the world for a couple of hours. And he walked into the very first Star Wars film. Huh. And, um, you know, to me, that was a moment where I realized how powerful pop culture can be in um, connecting people across uh, decades, across cultures. And um, so that book project was was successful enough that we we uh, looked for a sequel and our sequel was. Wait, uh, before you go to the sequel, let's yeah. talk about it's called Strategy Strikes Back. Strategy Strikes Back. How Star Wars explains modern military conflict. Yep. And then the book that you're about to talk to I, I, about, I hope, anyway, yeah. is called Winning Westeros, How Game of Thrones Explains Modern Military Conflict. Pretty, it, it's, it, you know, and, and by the way, we had some amazing writers. Uh, Max Brooks, who wrote World War Z, uh, yeah. was one of our headline writers. And, yeah, I noticed um, that. His, yeah. You know, his chapters uh, are fantastic, and um, he's a great guy to work with. Admiral James Stavridis, uh, who is the Supreme Allied Commander of Europe, uh, the commander of NATO forces. Um, uh, uh, General uh, McMaster, uh, who served as the National Security Advisor. Um, you know, we had some amazing writers and, um, it, it's all based on a simple premise that, and, and a premise that we're going to put into play here, uh, while we're talking that you can use, uh, pop culture as a jumping off point to talk about much larger, much bigger, much more important issues. And, yeah. and that sort of thing matters because, um, you know, whether we like it or not, whether we acknowledge it or not. Uh, we're all participating in national security mm. every day with our tax dollars uh, and with our votes. So, um, so yeah, so it's, it's, it can be a lot of fun, but it is uh, touching on some really important subjects. So I'm really excited about this. I have not, my, my book has not arrived yet. 
And uh, once I get it, I'll, I'm sure I'll have tons more questions than I do today. We're getting geared up for the 6th Annual Summer Badass Fest. And while we're working on a slate of apex badass films to enjoy, we've got an early action-packed announcement to make. Just like last year, we're kicking off Badass Season with a live movie watch and podcast recording. We've rented out a theater for connoisseurs of action films and bald move fans that just want to have a great time. Unlike last year, this year's movie is top secret. Hush, hush. No hints. Except, it's incredibly badass. It stars an absolute icon of the genre. We're willing to bet most of you haven't seen it, and it's going to be an incredible viewing experience with a packed house of bald movers. Those of you who came to last year's screening of Total Recall know what a party it was. And those of you who didn't, (laughs) now's your chance to experience it. Meet me and Jim. Order some custom movie-themed drinks at the theater's full bar. Then watch us record the full podcast for the movie. We reserved a venue over twice the size as last year, but seating is still limited. It's happening Friday, 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 June 21st at 7 p.m. in our hometown of Cincinnati. Get full details and buy tickets at baldmove.com slash live. Cincinnati's actually a pretty great city to visit, and we've got lots of details for side adventures on our event page as well. The Reds are playing the Boston Red Sox in their fantastic Riverside Stadium. The thrills of Kings Island just minutes away, and I'll be leading a kayak trip down the scenic Little Miami River on Saturday. Again, get full details and get your tickets now on our Badass Fest 6 page at baldmove.com slash live live. Since the dawn of time, we've been putting clothes on our back that identify us with our people, our group, our tribe. And why Bald Move might be one of the smallest, weirdest tribes out there, transcending all concepts of border, class, culture, and creed, we still have respect for the old ways. At support.baldmove.com, you can get t-shirts, hats, mugs, and more. We have something for every one of our podcasts, or just wear the four pips of the Bald Move logo with pride. Bald Move merch beats running around naked, and they make a great gift for the Bald Move fan in your life. Join our tribe! Head over to support.baldmove.com and click on merch to start shopping. Um, we're covering Cat 6 POV chapter in Clash. Uh-huh. And I'm just curious, like when I reached out to you, you said you are actually rereading Clash at the moment. I'm wondering I was. where, where yeah. you are. Yeah. So I, I when you asked, uh, I was just behind uh the just behind the chapter in question. Oh my god. Um, you know, and um so I uh I have read through the chapter. And what strikes me is just how many different moments there are in that chapter where generally speaking, you have a character who's um, observing the world around her, uh, experiencing war uh, as a, as a participant. Uh, And there's at least six different moments that I can uh, identify that 
pull threads on much larger tapestries yeah. uh, related to modern war. Yeah, this chapter has its tendrils all over the place. Yeah. Uh, I did want to ask you before we uh, before I do my synopsis, I wanted to ask you about something that maybe you're uniquely qualified to talk about, and that is Kat talks about her duty in this chapter. And she talks about how she's always done her duty. In fact, she like recounts almost every moment of her life when she did her duty. And now she finds herself in a very strange position. Now she's sort of the head of the castle. Edmure's gone. She's in charge. And so then the question she has to ask herself is, how do I know what my duty is now that all these people who... I used to serve her dead or gone. Yeah. Yeah. And so I guess that's a, that would be sort of a larger question. That is if someone lives their life as a soldier and measures success or measures, you know, the feeling of success with how well they met expectations, how does that person transition to then being the top dog? Yeah. How does that person go from someone who, was always dutiful to someone who now <laughs> has a much different rank and role in the entire effort. Yeah, and it, so I, I, I can actually say that I've I've studied it quite closely. In that my uh, PhD dissertation was on the the qualities and characteristics that differentiate successful um, military supreme commanders from unsuccessful hmm. ones, and it's a really tough question to answer in the sense that, um, I mean, let's start with your, your acknowledgement of, of duty or Catlin's acknowledgement of duty. Duty is often just simply, uh, a stand in for setting decisions aside, you know, like uh, I, I did what I was told to do. Um, you know, and, and there's, there's more to it than that. And, um, you know, it's, it's almost like a, a rule of thumb that you live by. Um, but when you go up the ladder, step by step by step by step, um, there are some problems or scenarios or challenges or conflicts where there isn't, you you, you cannot rely on a rule of thumb anymore, mm-hmm. right? You know, like, mm-hmm. um, and uh, like the scenarios that I was describing uh, or that I mentioned with respect to my dissertation you know, studying uh, General George Washington in the early stages of the war in 1776 into early 1777, when he's uh, being beaten by the British uh, all the way across New York State and into New Jersey. Hmm. Um, General uh, uh, General Grant, uh, General Ulysses S. Grant, uh, when the war is in the latter part of of uh, Latter part, latter part of the war in 1864 and into 1865, um, and then General Eisenhower um, in 1944. In the six months preceding uh, D-Day, uh, you know, from this side of history, from the other side of the timeline, it looks like all three of those were cinches. Like the decisions were. Um, inevitably to lead to success. And they, mm. it, it, that was, that was never the case. That was, um, th- there's a, there's a moment 
um, about a week before the D-Day landings where General Eisenhower's air chief of staff, so it's a, it's a British uh, air vice marshal who comes to him and says, I believe that the airborne drops will be combat ineffective um, on D-Day. They intended to drop two divisions of airborne troops behind the German lines at the, at the beach. The belief was that so many of them would be killed or wounded or injured in the landing, in the drop, uh, that they would be combat ineffective, that they wouldn't have an impact on uh, the German defenses, hmm. and that therefore we, we shouldn't undertake the airborne drops. Um, Eisenhower asked that that particular officer put his views in writing um, because he knew how high the stakes were and whether he was right or wrong, he wanted all of them to have their votes, so to speak, recorded in history. And, you know, there's a, there's a moment in the days leading up to the, the Normandy landings where Eisenhower goes back to his room. Um, and I, I don't have it verbatim, but it's something to the effect of um, you could not devise a more soul-wracking problem hmm. um, because if I let the airborne drops happen, and they and and what and and as this officer has described, if if they are combat ineffective, not only will I have been wrong, and the the it will jeopardize the entire landings, but I'll have. I'll have been warned not to do this mm -hmm. and, and we will have lost so many young people. Uh, in the end, he overruled uh, the air, com air uh, commander uh, and let the drops go as they went. And they, they did not, they were not combat ineffective, of course, they were combat effective. And it, those are the sorts Th that is the characteristic, that is the difference between successful and unsuccessful Supreme Commanders by and large. I'm simplifying here, of course. It's uh, good judgment and not just good judgment as in objectively good or bad. Uh, there is no such thing as good or bad at war in the sense that all war is relative to the adversary. Um, there is only superior or inferior judgment. Um, and th that's the sort of advice that I would put a hand on Catlin's shoulder. And I would say, do your best. Um, but no matter what you do, do better than your adversary, hmm. you know, make better decisions than your adversary. Um, you could make, you could make relatively poor decisions, but mm. as long as they were better than the, than who you're trying to beat, then you're still yeah. in good stead. She's in an interesting position because there are certain elements of her story that are very much just about, you know, set aside your, set aside your own desires, set aside your own will. Yeah. Just do what's asked for you because that is your duty. And then there are other aspects of her duty where it's more like a social pressure. Yeah. And now she's got to navigate this weird position where, she does not fully trust her younger brother's strategic mind. 
right? Yep. Yep. She, she would be happier if Ned was still alive or her, her father was a bit younger or something like that. Edmure doesn't really impress her uh, in terms of a military strategist. And yet she kind of has this social pressure where it's like, well, I can't really undermine him in a way that cuts out his, his authority. Mm -hmm. It could be that her duty in this case is to hold her tongue, wait and see what happens. And that's kind of, that's kind of where she's sitting in this chapter. So, She's right to second guess him. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, we lead the chapter with with um, him expressing, quote, tell father I have gone to make him proud. Yeah, yeah. And and what that naturally leads me to is, you know, why we fight or the, the reasons that put someone on the, the battlefield. And I like to think of it as almost like the war of the knife and the war of the map. Oh, um, so you have... Well, I mean, you have sort of um, the passions, um, the, the the need for killing. Um, and then at the same token, you know, to kill someone, you need you need the blood to do it. And um, and then by that, you have to be able to set that aside equally and be cold and hard and rational. Um, you know, in any strategic engagement, there's two wars that are happening simultaneously like I mentioned, that war of the map and the war of the knife, hmm. um, you know, and the map war is brick by brick, block by block. It's a logical contest where two parties are engaging for some interest using their best logic. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the knife war is, you know, two animals attempting to tear one another apart with all the yeah. power that their selves can muster. The challenge with this is that you need both to succeed. Yeah. Both both are valuable. You know, one points the way and the other fuels mm. the journey. And uh, with with Edmure, you get the sense that he's uh he he's sort of his coming from one side of that coin. Mm -hmm. Um and uh you need some of that in appropriate doses, but you also need to mine the map. Um, you know, and you need to have a a wider gaze uh, in order to be successful. Yeah, and that's so interesting. I'm going to read a synopsis of this chapter and we can talk more about it. Yeah. After sending off Edmure to defend the river against Tywin's men, Kat is left with her doubt and fear. She receives no comfort from the Sept and offers no comfort to Brienne about the duties of women. She receives news from Storm's End, wonders about Jon Snow's mother, and reflects on Roose Bolton's odd description of his bastard. As Tywin's men attempt to cross the river in small groups, Edmure's host sends them away with caltrips, arrows, and the natural defenses of the river, as Cat looks on from the watchtower. After day and night of intermittent attacks, Cat visits Cleos Frey and learns that that Tyrion's peace terms are worthless, and that only Sansa has been seen at court. Days pass, then Cat learns that Tywin's most robust attack has been thrown back. Catelyn still feels sullen and afraid, but the most recent battle is over. While the others feast in celebration, Cat studies maps by candlelight. So, um, Matt, I was thinking that there's a number of directions we can go with this. There's a lot, yeah. 
Um, I kind of would like to key in on something you said before my synopsis, and that is sort of the reason to fight. Yeah. I want to tweak this just slightly and ask you about the reason to die. Mm-hmm. And I think in this book in particular, one of the things that I've noticed this read through is that we have several different ideas about this idea of a good death. And I'll just, I'll just read a few of these that I've noticed in this chapter, you know, Ed Muir's talking about, I'm going to make father proud. And, and, you know, he's doing this for his father. Who's, who's kind of a daughter. And I don't know if his father will really know what Ed Muir has accomplished, but there's something about earning, earning your father's approval or something. That would be a good reason to die. And then, you know, maybe Rob is in it for revenge. Uh, we met we met Corin Halfhand recently, and really the cause of the the Night's Watch he think is worth dying for. Stannis, maybe he would think that death, a good death, would be about duty. Mel would be like a good death involves doing God's will. And Brienne would love to live on in song. So these are all kind of ideas of what a good death looks like. And so here's what I was going to ask you. Do you believe that there's such a thing as a good death? I do. I mean, I, I absolutely. And you know, the one thing that makes it really hard to answer the question in a general sense is that um, we each get to spend our own, you know? And so it, it really is in the eye of the beholder um, I've always been in love with uh, G.K. Chesterton's phrase that a true soldier fights not because he hates what's in front of him, but because he loves what's behind him. Um, and and that's my sort of starter's pistol for it. Um, it's it's the judgment that the value the value of the object that you seek um, is is worth the potential price that it might cost. Um, yeah, I, you know, when, before we came on, I, I mentioned that two years ago I donated a kidney. Um, there's a, uh, vanishingly small chance that, that, uh, that sort of, a uh, operation or procedure, uh, would cost my life, uh, roughly one in 10,000, uh, but valued against the upside for someone else. Uh, it was an easy decision for me to make. So it's mm. actually something that I've uh, wrestled with. This isn't sort of an esoteric academic question for me. I think it's a very important one. Um, we talked about duty earlier. Um, I went to college at West Point, And there are a number of years there when you're a cadet and soon thereafter, um, where there are a number of expectations that come with your duty Hmm. Uh, as as an officer in the United States Army. And at first, you sort of just follow that as a general prescription. But somewhere along the line, and obviously I can't pinpoint it on a timeline, you know, you, you, you say the words long enough, you start to believe them. Hmm. You start to, you actually start to, I think, live through them a little bit. Um and so I, I absolutely do believe that there are some uh, causes and risks uh, worth taking. There are some deaths that I would absolutely say are uh, good deaths. Um, 
you know, uh, whether or not that <laughs> I'd be perfectly happy, uh, you know, expiring in my sleep as an old man, I guess at this point, but, mm-hmm. um, Tolly's I, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, method, yeah, with, right? yeah, with a little bit of, uh, what I think they call it dream wine in him, in his mm-hmm. gut to kind of, uh, but I, you know, whether your life is long or short, I, I do think that it's, um, possible, uh, to have a good one, uh, have a good go of it, you know, uh, so that's sort of on the individual sense. Um, but it raises another larger issue, uh, which is, you know, what will we fight for collectively and how hard will we fight? And in the chapter, uh, Catlin makes a comment, you know, that Ed Muir had taken, quote, every able-bodied man for the Fords and left only a garrison made up mm-hmm. of the wounded, the old, and the sick. Mm-hmm. Um you know, uh, which is indicative that that they are fighting uh, with as much means as they can muster. And you know, when I when I would stand in front of cadets, one of the questions I you know I would ask them is that if someone unannounced knocked on your door and they point a gun in your face and they say, "Give me your wallet," you're probably going to give them your wallet. Um, but if someone knocks on your door, points a gun in your face and says, give me your daughter or give me your son. You know, if, if you see no other alternative, even you might be willing to fight. Um, And so we start to see uh, the big, you know, the beginnings of the motivation, uh, the motivations for fighting, you know, what, Mm -hmm. what interests are motivating you uh, to fight Uh, for some people? Absolutely. It's a good death. You know, Ed, like Edmure says, he's he's looking to fight to make his father proud. Um, but you know, uh, when you get enough of those individuals that are interested in fighting banded together, sooner or later you have a war. Um, and and that's sort of that that war that fighting uh, really animates this entire chapter mm-hmm. um, because we're looking at it through the lens of a participant. You know, someone who's uh, thinking through how it might turn out and how she ought to act within it. You know, Brienne is one of these people that is probably not going to be content with a hoster Tully, you know, going out as a old woman in a bed. I think her idea of a good death would be the kind of thing that would bring glory and maybe someone like, you know, Ryman the Rhymer would sing about after the fact. And Kat is thinking, I think Kat when looks on this and she's thinking, that's kind of a, a youthful, foolish point of view. But, and you can maybe correct me if I'm wrong here, but I kind of feel like if you're going to raise a host, you kind of need people with that youthful naivete. The idea, I think for someone like Brienne, who longs to be a soldier, you kind of need someone who views the glorious death as something that would be a good death. And so I'm wondering what you would say to that. I mean, it, on some level, I, um, it's better than an army of criminals that are just, or psychopaths that are just out for blood to, to, to uh, hurt and, and harm other human beings. 
So I, I like the like the uh, the 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 mountain would be a good example of that, right? Absolutely, yes. I, I mean, it, there's you can imagine a hierarchy of virtues that animate someone to go to war. Um, what you know, the 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 instinct for glory has been embedded in people since as long as we've been writing. It's the part of the earliest stories of, of war. Um, it may not be the most noble, but it's certainly not the least, certainly not the worst. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, there's a, an expression it's attributed to Napoleon that, you know, that, men men fight for little ribbons you know they 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 do anything to to obtain or uh, win a little ribbon or a medal and i actually think that he's not necessarily talking about the ribbon or the medal itself but the esteem of of other of others mm-hmm. um we're we're social creatures we're we're social animals we're um, you know, well, you know, being selfish has been identified as a, a trait that moves you up the, you know, the, that preserves your gene, your gene pool, so to speak. Um, you know, uh, humans are wired to cooperate in mm-hmm. large numbers and there's, you know, something built into all of us to want that kind of recognition and, um, you know, common fellow feeling from, you know, the, the others that we spend time with. So you mentioned that, uh, you know, Ed Muir has made this decision to really take every able-bodied warrior out to defend the river, leaving the castle, I wouldn't say undefended, but uh, because there are no, a number of troops, at least within close range, uh, that if there was a retreat, that would be needed. But the, what I was thinking when that happened was, oh, this is this is foreshadowing what's going to happen next chapter, and that is Winterfell is totally undefended. Yes. yes. And it, so here we have Cat kind of thinking, you know, even a even a wall as strong as River Run, or even a, a fort as as strong as River Run, you need someone to defend it. Yes, and it. Um, this is where I get down to sort of the. Imagine for a moment that I'm like a pro football NFL analyst that's right. breaking down game film. Mm-hmm. Um, so Carl von Clausewitz uh, wrote about the concept of unlimited warfare, which is to say, it's it's almost like idealized not ideal, but idealized warfare, which is mm-hmm. to say absolute uh, one immense knockout blow with all the power that you have. Um, like a haymaker. It, it, uh, yes. It's the, it's the, it's the haymaker view of, of warfare. However, we recognize that in the real world, that's almost never possible. Uh, so what we're looking at, the, the chapter is zooming in on fighting between Lannister forces and Northern forces. 
So we're going to stick to that for a moment. We're not going to look or think about the wider, wider conflict. Both of them are fighting for limited ends. You know, we're not at that single haymaker theory. So they're, they're fighting to preserve their, their own kingdom as they define it. Mm -hmm. They're fighting to retrieve the hostages that they want back. And they're both fighting with limited means. Now, Rob's army is closer to maximal means than the Lannister armies, as far as we can tell, uh, because, you know, they're, they're, they're really running, you know, they, they have no spares, no reserves, so mm -hmm. to speak. Um, both sides strategic objective is to inflict enough pain and damage on the adversary to force them to sue for peace, or this is say uncle warfare, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. uh, we are slicing the salami bit by bit until the other side says uncle. And, uh, you know, it, it's a choice of, of, of objectives in the television show season three, episode three, it's called walk of punishment is the episode. Uh, it's a little bit differently characterized, but Edmure takes a mill yeah. and the mountain escapes. Right. And the, the thing that's worth, I think, raising here, because we're talking about the book, but I think sometimes the show can uh, shed light. Mm -hmm. You know, Rob indicates uh, that he wanted to take the mountain and has a great concern for the troops that were lost in taking that mill. But what the show is highlighting here is what is the more valuable target? Um, and so, uh, in certain circumstances, it might be the mountain in certain circumstances, it might be Winterfell. It might be river run. Um, you know, it's, it's uh, hard to say, uh, the, and, and the thing that's toughest about it is you never know what straw will break the donkey's back. You never know what straw is going to be the last straw. For the yeah, adversary. in the show, I think it was something like along the lines of it almost showed Rob as a more strategic. Well, you, you can yes. see yes. Rob's yeah. in sort of strategic interior. He's sort of like, look, the mill wasn't important to me. I wanted to drive Tywin in a particular direction. Correct. Yeah. And and you were so fixated on this little, you know, piece of the, the chessboard, this one little square yep. that you didn't have the larger war in mind. And so the, the show really kind of gives you something of an insight into Rob's strategy. The books don't really do this, but in this chapter, it seems like Tywin is doing one of two things. And maybe I'm not seeing the, the whole picture here either, but Either he's doing what Brienne thinks, and that is, I'm going to test different parts of the river to see where I can tr where I can push my host over the river, mm -hmm. and I'm gonna I might have to lose a dozen men here or there to find the weak spot, but it's worth it if I can find out that information. Or another possibility is he doesn't care at all about River Run, and he's trying to play some kind of psychological game with Rob. Like I can get close to your mother, something, something yeah. along those lines. And I'm not sure what Tywin's uh, ultimate strategy here is because we don't really have Tywin POVs either. Um, but at the end of the day, in this chapter, Edmure's not a fool 
like the show uh, correct, portrays. Correct, correct. He defended. He, he it was his job to defend this particular castle, and he did it. All this relates back to sort of the central theme that's emerging from our conversation, which is uh, war has no price list. Hmm. You you determine what is the objective worth to you. What is worth spending human lives to achieve? And sometimes that is a psychological victory. Sometimes that is um, frightening your adversary. Sometimes it's uh, taking a key uh, location or place like Winterfell. Um, and sometimes it's it's something else entirely. Yeah. You know, and um, I would say... Uh, you know, Edmure does, of course, come across as uh, more, uh, you know, he's not comedic relief in the book, whereas he, he almost oh, is yeah. in, the, in a, the show. He's totally comic relief. My lords and ladies, <clears throat> I suppose this is the most important moment of our lives. What we decide today will reverberate through the annals of history. I stand before you as one of the senior lords in the country. A veteran of two wars. And I like to think my experience has led to some small skill in statecraft and Uncle. an understand. Please sit. In, in one of his messages to Catelyn in the chapter, um, he writes, uh, they shall not cross with respect to permitting the Lannister forces to cross the river. Um, hmm. You know, there's, there's a, uh, a message uh, that a transmission that comes through that Tywin tries to force a crossing at a dozen different fords. Uh, but every thrust had been thrown back yeah. at, at grievous cost to our foes. Um, you know, that highlights uh, the importance of geography right. uh, almost, uh, you know, if, if we start with the, the, proposition that the earth's surface is necessarily complex and we can use it in uncountable ways for protection and cover and concealment. Um, you know, tunnels are a great example, uh, that the world is, uh, paying witness to in Gaza right now. Uh, successful modern warfare is built on that principle that you have small units in tight coordination and cooperation moving independently and interdependently to take advantage. Um, the problem is that rivers remove all cover and concealment. <laughs> so you are, uh, uh, you know, you are a target every moment that you're crossing. Mm -hmm. um, even if you hold your breath really, really well and you go, you know, you dive into the water and you swim underneath the water, you still have to surface uh, to crawl out of the water. And you are still a target because there are not, uh, there is not a huge amount of tree cover uh, at a riverbank. Um, and so uh, the, you know, uh, Edmure and his, uh, his teams, his platoons, his fighting men uh, are in a really wonderful position um, because they are using cover and concealment and they are engaging targets that are not covered and not concealed. They also have the high ground in a sense that it, the, the banks are uneven. That's right. 
and they've got some good, you know, good tree coverage. They can they can shoot their arrows farther. Mm-hmm. They've got they've got a better line of sight. You know, Taiwan's trying to send people at, at day and night and different different spots along the river. And uh, and Kat gets to see some of this, and which is kind of an interesting moment in the book because Martin does not tend to write battle scenes very often. Yeah. Like even when Tyrion's in battle, he kind of gets conked out and wakes up later and finds out what's going on. Um, but it, it is from Kat's view, and she is in a watchtower, but she does get to see a little bit of the battle unfold. And I was wondering if there was anything about this battle that struck you as interesting or remarkable? I mean, a couple of things. First, you, you've mentioned this a couple of times. Uh, Martin doesn't write that many battle scenes. Yeah. Um, you know, if you're, you may be familiar or maybe not, um, you know, in interviews, he said he's always been fascinated by war. Um, but what's really interesting to me is that uh, he, he, while he was not and never was a pacifist, Uh, As he's put it, sometimes war is necessary. He asked for and was awarded conscientious objector status during the Vietnam War and chose alternate public service in Chicago uh, during Vietnam. And so to me, that actually rings true in that you could imagine that if if he had uh, served overseas in Vietnam, uh, he might be inclined to write more battle scenes as a result of his... um, experiences. Uh, but, you know, the defining war of his generation, he sort of uh, viewed from afar. And uh, so there's a little bit of a distance when you see him writing mm-hmm. about um, these scenes. And and by the way, I, I don't take that at all as a strike. In fact, actually, in the book that we talked about, the Winning Westeros book, um, I uh, concluded the book uh, by thanking uh, Martin, uh, for the gift that he's given by bringing major concepts in, in war, uh, to a far larger audience. Um, Mm. the, the thing that stood out for me about the Riverine fighting is that if we rewind to the beginning of our discussion, I mentioned that war of the knife versus the war of the map. And it may have come off that I was uh, denigrating Edmure and sort of praising Catelyn in that one was sort of identified with one side of the coin and the other, the other. Um, If you are to engage in intimate combat uh, in such a, you know, like I mentioned, um, this is within, you know, you know, this is, there's no cover, there's no concealment on the river and they are within miles or kilometers of, of their home. Uh, we get Edmure saying defiantly, they shall not cross. Um, you have to have the stomach uh, in order to stand and continue to fight, uh, no matter what, um, because at least the way that this chapter has revealed itself or unfolded, um, Edmure has made that commitment that he's either going to defend successfully defend his home, or he's not going to live to to tell about it. 
Right. Um, and, and that's, that, that's, uh, you know, like, um, uh, you know, at least to him, clearly that's a good death, you know, that's worth dying for. And, uh, I, I think that's part of why so many people find it interesting to get involved and in the headspace of a story like uh clash of Kings. Yeah. Because uh, there are so many characters that are literally gambling with the highest stakes. Hmm. Right. Now I study, you know, ancient near Eastern history and texts and the ancients have a much different view of what would make a, a war just? I think for us, something along the lines of a holy war or God told me to go fight or my God's bigger than your God. I think it's repugnant to most people. And I would tend to agree with, with that assessment. But in the ancient world, it was the only reason to fight. Yeah. You got to prove this. Is, is this something that God wills? And I thought it was interesting that Cat goes into the sept, prays for victory for her her son and her brother. So she lights a candle for Edmure and Rob. But in the previous chapter, or it's a chapter that's really close to this anyway, Tyrion is lighting a candle to the warrior for his brother. So it's almost like they're they're praying to the same God yeah. for victory. And I, I think, I mean, there's no doubt that that is an intentional commentary from Martin, who's, a, I'm pretty sure he's he's making some kind of commentary on Holy War. Uh, but I just noted that because in the ancient world, yeah, absolutely, that, that was the only kind of war that was legitimate. I mean, not just ancient. I mean, you get the same comments out of Abraham Lincoln about the American Civil War. That oh, interesting. All of- Oh, absolutely. We're all appealing to God. We all think that we're fighting in God's name and none of us know for certain. Uh, because if, if we did know for certain and it could be proven conclusively, then we wouldn't have, uh, we wouldn't have to even assemble on the battlefield. You know, I like, um, I, I understand why it is, you know, because the stakes are as high as they are. Um, it naturally lends people to start thinking of higher powers. Um, th- there's a very, the very concluding sentiment to the chapter uh, is Catelyn appealing to the gods or thinking about the gods the, as she, as the chapter ends, the gods had granted them victory after victory at stone mill ox cross in the battle of the camps at the whispering wood. But if we're winning, why am I so afraid? Right. And it's because uh, war is where one plus one equals apple. You know, there, there is, it, it, sure. it is, it is as difficult to tease out cause and effect um, as, as anything, um, you know, like for example, general George Washington is America's pr- probably, and I'm fairly certain that this is true uh, America's losingest battlefield commander. Um, but, but he won the war that mattered the most without which there would be no United States of America. Um, general Ulysses Grant lost more 
men, uh, and it was men then, in the Overland uh, Virginia campaign in 1864 uh, than any other campaign uh, hmm. to date. Um, in fact, uh, Arlington National Cemetery is filled. You know, that was that it, it was the it was that campaign alone that got Arlington National Cemetery its first uh, plots of dirt, uh, first bodies into the ground. Interesting. Um, but of course, General Grant uh, ground uh, Robert E. Lee down until his Confederate forces, his Army of Virginia, was too weak to continue. Um, you know, again, it's that same idea. It's incredibly difficult, darn right impossible to know which straw will break the donkey's back hmm. um, or whether the actions you are undertaking now will in fact lead to the objective you seek to achieve. And, you know, that's a tough thing for for us to take, you know, like we're used to you know, uh, uh, baking bread with, with a step-by-step paint-by-numbers approach uh, where if you do A, B, and C, then you get D for sure. But hmm. that's not that's not how it works on the battlefield. And that's what Catelyn is uh, appealing to here. Um, you know, she's got this sense that, uh, you know, little victory, little victory, little victory, little victory isn't really going to lead to what they want. And of course she doesn't know it yet, but she's right. Well, and she's an interesting character in this book because she's been all over the place. Uh, you know, Edmure's whole world is river run and, you know, he's got, you know, he's got news. He's got, he's got Ravens coming to and fro. He kind of understands the larger politics of the realm, I would imagine, but his, his whole success and failure. In fact, I would almost say his whole life hinges on this one battle. Whereas Cat yeah. doesn't really have the luxury to just think in terms of small battles. You know, her, her sons are up North and, and, and cast to the wind. Uh, her daughters are hostages or so she thinks her whole life and her whole heart is spread all over this kingdom. Yeah. She does not have the luxury to really celebrate any one battle. No, that's right. And you raised the hostages issue. That's, um, you know, as as distant and cold and rational as she has the ability to be, her two daughters at that point are held hostage, or so she thinks. Um, And so there's an element of the personal there. And, you know, um, you know, of course, we, we live in a moment where, you know, we're watching hostages taken in the hundreds in a particular conflict right now, um, you know, and uh, so it's it's not as though that isn't a theme that doesn't echo uh, from, you know, from the book and, and into the real world. Um, you know, it reminds me a few years ago, geez, it might have been a decade ago now, but one of my cadets asked me, there, there was a moment in time about a decade ago where ISIS uh, burned a Jordanian Air Force pilot in a cage. And the, this cadet comes to me and says, why, why would anyone do something so awful? You know, first taking, you know, taking this person as a hostage, but then taking the trouble to burn them alive in a cage and put it on a video. Um, when you are the 
when you are the weaker actor, um, so for example, if you are ISIS, you have no Air Force. The only way that you have the ability to fight back against a modern Air Force is to strike fear into the next pilot that steps into the co cockpit. And I know that that is horrifying. I find it repugnant. I find it disgusting. Of course, it's terrible. Um, but we have to admit that to ISIS or an actor like that, their willingness to do something that is absolutely socially horrifying, it, you know, it's wrong on every single level, uh, does come from some basis. Similarly, the the taking of hostages that's, you know, almost, I, I would say, a theme in uh, Martin's in Martin's book. Oh, and yeah, absolutely. It's as old as it gets in warfare. And it's it it's still happening because it still works. I, I you know, I, it's not like I say that with us. I'm not smiling while I'm saying that. I I hate thinking that way. But it, it that's, you know, that's part of part of this uh, competition. Yeah, it's amazing how ancient a practice that is and that it and it that it is still used in modern warfare. Oh, it's as it's as old as uh tunnels. Um Yeah. You know, uh, and and you know, we have all these uh modern gizmos and widgets and we think AI is about to change the world. Um but both in Gaza and in North Korea uh, those people are Olympic gold medalists in digging holes in the ground. And those holes that they dig in the ground um, are very uh, protective. They are the ultimate in cover and concealment. Um, and they, they do protect them against all these modern bells and whistles that we think uh, are so important. Was there anything else that struck you about this chapter that you thought was interesting because it connects to a larger theme of a book or runs throughout the larger story that Martin's put together. So there's a, at a moment, um, Catelyn mentions the Lannisters are liars, every one. And I, I do want to highlight that as a theme and, and something that I picked up on the Lannisters do, uh, they are successful, but they seek cheap victories. And the red wedding that's coming is a classic example you know, short-term gains with long-term consequences. And the problem with those long-term consequences is that in the long run, almost nobody wants to ally with the devil. Um, and you even get that out of Circe when she mentions, when you play the Game of Thrones, you win or you, or you die. There's no middle ground. And I, I see that as the Lannister fallacy, that everything is zero-sum, mm. that it's all or nothing. And that forces a focus on quote unquote wins and losses. And I want to push back against that idea with some of Martin's own quick, you know, quick examples. The good guys unify others through goodwill and principled leadership. And Robert, Robert actually tried to teach Cersei that by asking her whether five or one was the greater number. Mm, mm -hmm. And he splays his hand out, you know, so that all five fingers are going in different directions. And then he curls his, his hand into a fist to demonstrate the military principle of unity of command. And that's what I think the good guys or heroes do. They unify. 
they serve, they sacrifice, and others learn their stories and believe in those principles, and they take up the cause, and more and more of them take up the cause. That's why the good guys actually usually do win in the end. It just takes a little bit longer. Um, so I, I, that's something that I, I, I picked up on in this particular chapter, Catelyn sort of, you know, denigrating the Lannisters, which is appropriate. But it, to me, I think that's a bigger point than it's, just... It's an interesting moment because what is she saying? She's saying Tyrion lied about not sending us an assassin to kill my son and ended, you know, that, that assassin ended up cutting my hand. We know as readers that Tyrion was not behind that, right? That's right. But she's right in the sense that Tyrion's peace terms cannot be trusted. Yeah. He, they, they are lying in the sense that they don't have Arya or they are lying in, in, in sort of presenting these peace terms as if this is something that we could all agree on. They, Tyrion knows that that's not the case. So it's, she comes to the right conclusion based on the wrong evidence, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think that as, as naive as it comes off, uh, Ned Stark's actions and later Jon Snow's actions uh, really reverberate well beyond themselves. And you find that more and more, you know, uh, people are attracted to their cause and uh, are are desiring to ally with them. Whereas the Lannisters, you know, the, their their list of allies is only as long as uh, their pocket is large enough to pay them. Hmm. Notable introductions in the chapter. We hear about Septon Osmond from Cat's childhood. We do not meet him, but she remembers him. Also, Maester Kim. Uh, Lord Daramond is mentioned. And I met for the very first time the word Rill, R-I-L-L. Are you familiar with that word? I am not. Okay. This was in uh, this was in the little song that Ryman the Rhymer was singing. A rill is a small stream or a groove created by a small stream. And I always love it when Martin brings in that kind of archaic vocabulary. So Rill was a, a new word for me. And notable departures, uh, Lord Lefford, bannerman of Tywin, uh, we hear tell of his death. And then I was going to say, in terms of the differences between the show and the book, well, kind of none of this is in the show, except... Yeah. We see the strategy of the the stone mill kind of repurposed uh-huh. for yeah. the show, which we talked about a, a bit. Have a situation with one of my lieutenants at the stone mill, which may have some bearing Why don't upon you. Him. Shut your mouth about that damn mill, and don't call him nephew. He's your king. Rob knows I meant him no disrespect. You're lucky. I'm not your king. I wouldn't let you wave your blunders around like a victory flag. My blunder. Sent Tywin's mad dog scurrying back to Casterly Rock with his tail between his legs. I think King Rob understands we're not going to win this war if he's the only one winning any battles. There's glory enough to go around. It's not about glory. Your instructions were to wait for him to come to you. I seized an opportunity. 
What value was the mill? The mountain was garrisoned across the river from it. Is he there now? Of course not. We took the fight to him. He could not withstand us. I wanted to draw the mountain into the west, into our country where we could surround him and kill him. I wanted him to chase us, which he would have done because he is a mad dog without a strategic thought in his head. I could have that head on a spike by now. Instead, I have a mill. Thank you, Matt. Oh, it's super. I, I usually talk with professional medievalists, but this is the kind of conversation that I just haven't had on this podcast yet. So I, I really super. appreciate it. Yeah. And it, I love knocking around the subject. I mean, honestly, like uh, I do, I mean, I recognize that a lot of the stuff that Martin raises, um, you know, not everybody wants to go down those rabbit holes, but, you know, to the extent that they're interested, I can, you know, I, I really appreciate the opportunity to do it. Well, fantastic. And maybe I'll uh, knock on your door again sometime. Uh, thank you so much. And thank you. Have a great day. All right. Take care.